Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And today is a part two of lessons for us in leadership today in the 21st century from the Desert Fathers and Mothers of the 3rd to the 5th centuries. Now, I know this is a stretch for some of you listening to this podcast and very much outside your comfort zone. Uh, now, listen, we've, I know we've had over a million downloads the last 12 months, so there's a diversity of leaders uh, listening from over 100 countries to this podcast. So you're coming, I know, at, from different cultural contexts in a global leadership community, and so this is a stretch, I know, for some, and I know I would have been offended by this topic uh, if I had heard about it early in my journey. Uh, with Christ. But I want to invite you to be open. Uh, I never expect to be talking about this, uh, Desert Fathers and Mothers, uh, but I believe it's extremely important to creating a culture of deep transformation. And let me invite you to pick up a free ebook on our website, emotionallyhealthy.org, at emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history. It's a little ebook that I, I wrote. It's very short. You're going to read it you know, in less than an hour. Uh, that gives a, a sense of how the church has developed over these 2,000 years and why it's important to learn from different streams that are very different than our stream. And uh, so pick it up, emotionallyheather.org slash church history uh, at our website, and I think it will help fill out some of the blanks here. Now, we're living in an age where the church globally is in a crisis of discipleship. Actually, not just a crisis of discipleship, that leads, of course, to a crisis of leadership development in the church. And I believe it's the greatest challenge facing us in the world today as a church, the shallow, the superficiality, where we are one mile wide, lots of people one inch deep. And uh, this is the culture of so many of our churches where we've got lots of people who attend and may even serve, and they believe intellectually, but they're not... Uh, actively following the person of Jesus, allowing Jesus to shape them, lead them, form his image in them. And so there's not a a life of being continually transformed by the person of Jesus. So many are just living on autopilot. And I confronted this early on uh, in 1990, um, early 1990s, as we planted New Life Fellowship Church here in Queens, New York City. And again, we're a multiracial community seeking to bridge racial, cultural, economic, gender barriers. And I realized early on that uh, evangelicalism, that everything I'd learned in my own formation and leadership and seminaries did not change people deeply enough to enable us to, to live in a community with people from 75 different nations, and especially dealing with the racial issue here in our country. And so we were at a wall, and I tried everything I could to see people changed deeply by Jesus and all the different paradigms. And, and then I hit my own wall personally, and I got stuck uh, and in need of desperate change. And it led me on a journey in 1994 and of really wrestling with uh, my own iceberg, discipleship, leadership, uh, culminating where God met uh, me, God met Jerry and I in 1996 in what we call, called our second conversion where we realized that emotional health and spiritual maturity cannot be separated. That's not possible to be spiritually mature while remain, remaining emotionally immature. And that I was an emotional infant trying to raise up mothers and fathers of the faith that catapulted us uh, into learning about limits and genograms and brokenness and, and skills, relationship skills and uh, great riches, great change happening in people's lives in our church in the late 90s. And and of course, that, that, that led me deeper into Jesus and to begin learning about how do I slow down our church? How do I slow people down to cultivate that personal relationship with Jesus much more intensely, uh, much more deeply? 
And so I was studying and reading a lot about the history of the church and monasticism in particular until I finally took a sabbatical in 2003, 2004 for four months and actually lived and learned from different monastic communities about silence and stillness. And that's what got me into all this thing called the Desert Fathers in 2003 and was quite transformative. And I'm, I am convinced that uh, if we're going to learn about slowing down for Jesus and learning about a deep spirituality uh, with Jesus and in Jesus and for Jesus, that our tradition, especially as evangelical, missional, multiplying churches, uh, that we're going to need to learn from people outside uh, through history uh, from them. So a little biblical backdrop in this I, I find very helpful, and I think it is, it is the story of Daniel in Babylon. Now, in the book of Daniel, we read about Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and his Babylonian armies with their gods conquering Jerusalem and carrying away God's people as slaves. And one of those was a young teenager named Daniel. And he's cut off from his teachers, his friends, his food, his culture, his language. Even he, his name is changed. And he's brought to the Babylonian court and ends up studying all this pagan material, myths and astrology and mathematics and medicine and religion by pagan priests and counselors. And, and so Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had one goal, and that is to assimilate Daniel and to eliminate his distinctiveness as a God follower and absorb him into the values of their culture. And, and Babylon is used throughout scripture to refer to uh, demonic, worldly, pagan powers that seek to swallow up God's people. We see the image of Babylon used throughout the book of Revelation, for example. Because behind Babylon, the culture of the Roman Empire in, in, in the first century were demonic powers. And that was the, the Revelation's point. And behind every worldly culture, all cultures, it, it are demonic powers seeking to swallow up us as God's people. But Daniel was able to resist the enormous power of Babylon in his day, not as a cloistered monk living behind walls, because he had actually had heavy job responsibilities. He had people giving him orders. And he had a minimal support system as well, and I'm sure a very long to-do list. But but he, he had a deep spirituality, uh, a rule of life. He had uh, offices. He was committed to prayer in this hostile envi environment. And, and he knew that to resist the beast of Babylon, something drastic was needed. And I believe in the same way we need something drastic to live in Babylon of our day. And we need to help our people live, uh, I believe, a radical life with Jesus. And on top of that, the world is changing faster than ever before in human history. I mean, uh, Richard Swenson says in one of his books, he's a futurist, a former medical doctor, that the last 30 years has, we've experienced more change than the previous 5,000 years of recorded history all put together. And I mean, the world's changing so fast we blink and it changes. I mean, Ray Kurzweil, the director of engineering at Google, he said it best. He says the 21st century, the next 100 years, will be equivalent to 20,000 years of progress uh, at the present rate. And so things are moving quite quickly. And so we've got to slow down our people to be with Jesus. We've got to slow down our own lives to be with Jesus. And just telling people to practice more spiritual disciplines is not enough. More Bible study, more prayer, more retreats, more church activity. And I think we, I, I, I firmly believe we underestimate the challenge facing us uh, culturally, societally, and in terms of powers and principalities seeking to cut us off from Jesus and our people. And so underneath, and many of you listening are, have been exposed to emotionally healthy uh, discipleship, the course that we're bringing to churches, or emotionally healthy leader book or other books. And, but underneath all that is the riches of monasticism, the Desert Fathers. 
And again, they saw themselves as following in the biblical models of Moses being in the desert 40 years and Elijah and John the Baptist and Jesus in the desert. And we'll talk about Jesus in the next couple of podcasts and, and his rhythms, his desert rhythms in particular. Uh, but I want to focus in this podcast on the Desert Fathers and, again, a few more lessons that I think are so valuable, so important for us to absorb and be challenged by for our day-to-day. The true father of monasticism actually is Anthony. He's called Anthony the Great. Uh, he's the father of all monks, whether it's the Eastern Church or the Western Church. And uh, he lived, born in 251 AD. His roots are North Africa. He's African, out of Egypt. And actually, Egypt had such a move of God uh, in the third century that it was considered the second holy land for centuries. Now, Anthony uh, the Great, his parents were landowners in the Nile Valley of Egypt, uh, but they died when he was young, uh, probably about 18 to 20 years old. They left him to take care of his younger sister. Then one day he was reading in Acts chapter 4 about the early church selling all their possessions and giving all their land and money to the poor. So he did that except he set aside some money for his sister. And then he went into the Egyptian desert to seek God. And and, and the words of Jesus, do not be anxious about anything, but seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added on to you. And and then he found himself in this intense spiritual warfare with the devil and his false self. And he took took very seriously the the call of of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, where, where Paul says, you know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And that word, strict training, uh, he goes, we do it. They did it. Athletes do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And Paul says, I strike my body and make it my slaves that after I've preached to others, I myself would not be disqualified for the prize. And so very much fasting, prayer, etc. For 20 years, Anthony lived in the desert uh, and again, suffering great temptations and solitude, but he emerges uh, after that 20 years, and people began to join him in the desert, and he attracted thousands of people as he emerged, out of, and, and he came out a deeply transformed person in the, in, in the inside, in his interior, and he, and he modeled a incredible wisdom and grace, and, and God launched him into one of the most remarkable ministries of his day, preaching the gospel, healing people, performing miracles, casting out demons, fighting heresy. I mean, emperors came to him to seek his counsel. He ministered among prisoners and the poor, and he corrected unjust judges. And again, people came to him from all over for for wisdom and and healing. And Athanasius, who uh, wrote about him, wrote wrote the life of Anthony in a book worth reading, I I would say. Here's how he describes or summarizes the force of Anthony's life of how he lived in the desert with God for 20 years. He says, it was as as if Anthony were a physician given to Egypt by God. For who went to him grieving and did not return rejoicing? Who went in lamentation over his dead and did not immediately put aside his sorrow? Who visited while angered and was not changed to affection? What poor person met him in exhaustion who did not, after hearing and seeing him, despise wealth and console himself in his poverty? What young man coming to the mountain and looking at Anthony did not at once renounce pleasures and love moderation? Who came to him tempted by a demon and did not gain relief? And who came to him distressed in his thoughts and did not find his mind calm? Uh, extraordinary. And, and uh, you know, the Desert Fathers and Anthony in particular, as he, as he was a, considered the father of monasticism, uh, when you get to this place in God of, of seeking his face with silence and solitude, 
uh, and it was, you begin to, to live life and see life outside of secular categories and bear witness to another angle of what's going on here and be able to see the idols in the world and the idols in the church and the idols in our own heart. So here I want to share with you today four gifts and applications for us uh, in leadership uh, in the 21st century that come out of the Desert Fathers. Last podcast, I shared one huge one about uh, the cell and silence, but I want to give you four here that are just so uh, important and beautiful. And again, remember these sayings of the Desert Fathers, uh, this comes out of that. And, and in fact, Benedict Award, her book is really worth picking up. Uh are meant to be read slowly, prayerfully, thoughtfully, not rushed through. It's not like reading a novel. And uh, so the first gift is this, that it's not just seeking God's face and growing into a greater lover of God. A big theme of the desert is growing in love, number one, and not judging other people. I'll say it again. Another big, big theme in the desert is to grow in love and grow in not judging others. Uh, Rowan Williams, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a book called Where God Happens. He's referring to the desert. And he writes this. He goes, one thing that comes out very clearly from any reading of the great monastic writers of the 4th and 5th centuries is the impossibility, impossibility of thinking about spiritual life without the business of living in the body of Christ in concrete mature, community. And that the substance of our relationship with God is bound up with how we manage the proximity of our human neighbors. So Anthony, for example, he, he, he said the following, our life and death is with our neighbor. If we win our brother, we win God. If we cause our brother to stumble, we have sinned against Christ. And it was understood that gaining your brother or sister and winning God are linked. That when we, when we win our brother, when we're with our, when we have loving relationships, it's a place where God happens. Uh, God shows up. And in other words, our success is measurable to the degree in which those around us are discovering a way to truth and life in Jesus by their contact with us. As Theodore Fermi said in the Desert Father, there is no virtue greater than that of not being scornful of other people. And so this theme of growing in love, in fact, this was one of the revelations of emotional health in 1996, which Jerry and I realized was that we were passionately zealous for God, but we weren't very good at loving people, even each other as a married couple. And that our, our love for God and love for people had somehow gotten separated. In the desert, in all the desert literature, you'll see all the desert sayings constantly, this theme of love for God that doesn't translate into love for people is not really a biblical love for God. Something's missing. Now, a colorful personality in the early monastic world and in fact, this guy's burial place is still shown to visitors outside of Cairo at a monastery. And he's called uh, Moses the Black. He actually, or Moses the Negro. He was a released slave who lived as a, at one point as a robber, uh, but, but came to Christ and late in life became a monk. And he became one of the great fathers of the desert as well. And he actually retired in a city called Petra where he was martyred with seven others by barbarian invaders. Very fascinating. But here's what he has so many great saying, uh, Moses uh, Moses, he said this, the monk must die to his neighbor and never judge him in at all in any way. The monk must die to his neighbor and never judge him at all in any way. In other words, he say, he's saying that uh, it involves our own death. I must die to myself as if I, I have the 
gifts to to see other people and I can I can pronounce other people's spiritual condition as good or bad but my my own awareness of my failure and weaknesses enables me to see people differently and and so I, I put my neighbor in touch with God by, out of my own brokenness. And so for the Desert Fathers, this was just so basic for growth and grace. Here's, a, here's a way, another Desert Father. He's called John the Dwarf. Funny the names these guys had. Here's, here's what he said. You don't build a house by starting with the roof and working down. You start with the foundation. And they said, what does that mean? And he said this. The foundation is our neighbor whom we must win. The neighbor is where we start. Every commandment of God depends on this. Again, Moses, again, he said it this way. If you're occupied with your own faults, you have no time to see those of your neighbor. The desert monastics were very well aware that one of the great temptations of religious living is the urge to intrude between God and other people. And we actually, we're so tempted to think we know better for people than God. In fact, another great story is, uh, again, we're back to Moses. Uh, the, the, the brothers at this city called Skidus uh, found uh, another brother had committed a, a fault. So they called a meeting and they invited uh, Moses to come. You know, Abba Moses, he was called. But he refused to go. And so they sent someone to say to him, we're all waiting for you. So Moses got up and he set off. But he took a leaky jug and he filled it with water and he took it with him. And the others came out to meet him and said, what is this, Father? And the old man said to them, my sins run behind me and I cannot see them. Yet here I am coming to sit in judgment on mistakes of somebody else. And when they heard this, they called off the meeting. I love that. Again, I, uh, we have our own leaky jugs. And uh, I love the saying, my sins run out behind me and I cannot see them. Yet here I am coming to sit in judgment on the mistakes of somebody else. And so lesson number one from the desert that I, I invite you to take with you is growing in non-judgmentalism, taking a log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else uh, is one of the great gifts of the desert for us today. The second is this, to guard your heart with regards to material possessions, that there's great value in possessing nothing. Now, the issue of, of money and debt and possessions and security, I mean, it's, it's large for all of us. I know it's large for me. I thought it would go away as I got older. It doesn't. And uh, how we handle our hearts with material possessions, whether you have a little or a lot, uh, is a gigantic spiritual issue. And I remember visiting my first monastery in 2003 and uh, being with a number of young monks who had divested themselves of all their wealth, had given it all away. And I was like, they, they own nothing, you know, but a couple of, you know, cloaks. And, and I just was like, all I could think of was the rich young ruler, you know, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And I was challenged about my own relationship to possessions and, and money. Uh, not that I had a lot of it, uh, and, uh, but I, I was grasping and I remember getting a, a fresh revelation of that the power and principalities behind material possessions and why Jesus said you cannot serve both God and, and mammon. A great desert mother was called Sincletica. She, was actually, she actually had also been inspired by Anthony the Great. And she came from Alexandria, Egypt, from a wealthy family. When her parents died, she gave all of her money and possessions to the poor. She abandoned city life and went to live in the desert as a hermit. And she drew uh, great numbers of women who were inspired by her 
and to also seek God in the desert as hermits. They form communities, etc. But here's what she wrote. She said, she was asked, is absolute poverty perfect goodness? And she replied, it is a great good for those who can do it. Because as strong clothes are laundered pure white by being turned and trodden underfoot by water, a strong soul is strengthened by freely accepting poverty. Another great story is by a guy named Theodore. He had three, he had three good books. And he went to another, you know, father, Macarius was his name. And he said, I have three good books and I am helped by reading them. Other monks also want to read them and they are helped by them. Tell me what to do. And Macarius, this great father, said, reading books is good, but possessing nothing is more than anything. And when he heard this, Theodore went out, sold his books, and gave the money to the poor. All right, well, I'm looking around right now in my office here. I've got a lot of books on these shelves. <laughs> and I do have a policy of giving them away when the shelf fills up. Uh, there's a limit. I give others, I give books away, so I have more room. I still have a lot of books here. Evagrius, you know, another great desert father, he wrote this. He said, cut the desire for many things out of your heart and so prevent your mind from being dispersed and your stillness lost. I mean, what a challenge, huh? Cut the desire for many things out of your heart and so prevent your mind from being dispersed and your stillness lost. You know, it's interesting. They didn't, you know, so often they didn't talk directly about Jesus, but everything in their life was about Jesus. It, it, it's a it's giving. So why? So you can have Jesus as the core and center of your life. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may um, gaze upon the Lord, you know, all my life. So Psalm 27, 4, et cetera. Okay, that's number, so number one is uh, this cultivating of love of neighbors, your neighbor, uh, and, and not despising anyone. The second is guarding our heart with with regards to material possessions, possessing nothing, the value of that, and just be holding it all very loosely because we will die with nothing. But the third is do nothing for show. Uh, do absolutely nothing for show for other people. Now, in a social media age with popularity, Twitter, you know, Facebook, Instagram followers, we're all about impact and being known. I mean, it's a the issue of, of popularity and being known is a, is a large idol in the church. It's a large idol in leadership in the church. Uh, and all I can think of is Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, you know, do not make theater uh, your righteousness before uh, others, you know, whether it's fasting, praying, uh, giving, uh, but in secret, you know, pray or fast. And and so there's this, this a real theme in all the Desert Fathers, not all, many Desert Fathers sayings about uh, doing nothing for, for show. And uh, there's this theme of hiddenness. And so you see a lot of stories about uh, people coming to the desert to seek out a certain monk. And they, they, will not, they'll, they will not let themselves be found. They'll say, oh, no. So uh, one story, a guy named Simon, uh, you know, again, one of the desert fathers. And he says a, a, a provincial government official came to see Simon. And Simon took a leather belt that he wore and climbed a palm tree uh, to clean it with the palm leaves. And when the judge's party showed up, they said, where's the hermit of this, you know, this part of the desert? And Simon answered, there is no hermit here. So the judge went away. And stories like that occur over and over again. They'll say, no, he, he doesn't live here. No, he's a, he, or he's a no good, referring to themselves, oh, he's a no good scoundrel. scoundrel. You don't want to go see him. It's actually quite funny, but do nothing for show. Uh, I like what, again, the, the desert mother, Syncletica, said, 
uh, all virtue will be lost if it's known about everywhere. She says, if you pour vain praises on a soul, it goes soft and weak itself in seeking goodness. If you pour praises on the soul, it goes soft and weak in seeking goodness. And so they avoided receiving praise because they, 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 they believed it did something to your soul negatively. Uh, uh, this is another amazing story. The monks came to Anthony the Great. Again, he's the father of fathers of the Desert Fathers. And, and they praised uh, one of the monks. And so what Anthony did is he went to see that monk who got the praise. And he tested him to see if he could endure being insulted. And when he saw he could not bear it, he said to him, You are like a house with a highly decorated outside, but burglars have stolen all the furniture by the back door. <laughs> Imagine, think of the praise that you receive, and uh, almost all of us in leadership get a, get, a, get a significant amount of praise from those we serve uh, year after year after year. Now, yes, we get criticism, but there's a lot of praise, probably more than in most other uh, vocations in life. But there was a great danger understood in receiving praise into our souls. And uh, so Anthony made sure that if the person got praise, let's, let's see how he handles the insults. Uh, I thought that was quite brilliant. So do nothing for show. Just take that. Think of the word secret. Think of the word hiddenness. Great theme of Desert Fathers. And then a fourth and final uh, great lesson I want to leave you with here on, on the uh, sayings of the Desert Fathers is, is accepting the reality of warfare. I always hoped and expected as I've lived out my Christian life through my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and now I'm early, early 60s, and you know, it would just get easier. You know, the warfare would, would cease. But no, a great lesson of the Desert Fathers is accept the reality of warfare. Now, there's battles in every decade. Lust, anger, bitterness, you name it. Now, Jesus defeated the devil. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. He disarmed the powers of principalities. But there still is an act of warfare going on. The evil one is furious. That's why we pray on a daily basis in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. And Paul wrote so clearly, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. And so this accepting the, the reality of warfare. So uh, one of the sayings that Desert Fathers went like this, again, this was attributed to, to Abba Anthony. The greatest thing a man can do is to throw his faults before the Lord and to expect temptation to his last breath. Uh, and I, I had a mentor who had a saying that, uh, he carried with him, and it was this unguarded strength is double weakness. Unguarded strength is double weakness. In other words, where you believe you're strong, that you wouldn't fall, uh, if you actually believe that, you're doubly weak. And uh, Agathon, another desert father, said this, every time a man wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, want to prevent him, for they know it's only by turning him away from prayer that they can hinder his journey. Prayer is warfare to the last breath. So don't be surprised by the fact that it's a battle uh, because the evil one knows if he can keep you from abiding in Jesus, he's got you. Another great theme of the Desert Fathers around this warfare issue is weep is the theme of weeping. You see this a lot in sayings. Um, and so a brother asked one of the Abbas, what do I do about my sins? And the old man said, um, he who wishes to purify his fault purifies them with tears. For weeping is the way of the scriptures and the fathers give us. 
when they say weep. There is no other way than this. And so they're very much in the humility of, of uh, humility and weakness in the midst of warfare and very concerned of falling into pride, even by their successes spiritually. Uh, and that's why they say a man must breathe humility, they said, and the fear of God as ceaselessly as he inhales and inhales the air. And so one of the central practices for the Desert Fathers was to manifest their thoughts to someone older, kind of a form of confession. So John the Dwarf wrote this, nothing makes the enemy happier than those who do not manifest their thoughts. In other words, they, they were very aware that we have a lot of self-protection uh, and that to grow in God requires a great self-knowledge before we can actually listen to God in our hearts. Because it's God alone who can tell me who I am. And that's a lifelong process of bringing my thoughts and longings into his presence without fear and deception. And so they, they had this you know, custom. They, they would go to an elder who represents God as a key to growth spiritually and become defenseless uh, in vulnerability <coughs> with a heart of transformation, to be transformed, manifesting or sharing their thoughts. That's something for many of us we're sometimes not even sure we want. And so they, they, these desert followers would, would encourage us to, to see the, our fragileness and actually even the worst of ourselves. And, uh, but again, one of, the, one of the most famous sayings that I never forgot it uh, was <clears throat> brother, there were some brothers who were jealous of a desert father called John the Short. And uh, as he was teaching some brothers in front of the church, so they said to him, John, your cup is full of poison. And John answered, yes, it is. But you said that only when you see the outside, I wonder what you would say if you saw the inside. So next time you get criticism and someone says, you know what, you're only seeing a piece of it. Could you imagine if you show the inside of who I am? Then you'd really have something to criticize. So again, we're aware, accepting a reality of warfare, warfare in great humility. So I, I hope I've whet your appetite. There's a lot to learn from these desert fathers who follow Jesus. They're so wildly different and eccentric. This very different time of history, third, fourth, and fifth century. And so let me invite you to you know pick up and the sayings of the desert fathers by Benedict Ward or the desert fathers by Penguin or where God happens by Rowan uh, Williams, because. We need to somehow fashion a desert with God ourselves in the midst of our uh, ministries, in the midst of our leadership and activity. Remember, if Jesus needed to get away from people, how much more do we? And we've got to find a desert rhythm in our daily days, our weeks, our months, our years, so we can anchor ourselves in the love of the fathers. Uh, in fact, the most loving thing you can do for those around you uh, is to fashion a desert. You know, if we skimp on our inner work, our outer work will suffer as well. So uh, let me invite you to take your own steps to create a life that's never been lived before. That's your life. There's only one you on the earth. Uh, and your journey is going to lead into a uniqueness that doesn't exist at this point. So uh, let me invite you again to consider the EH Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course for your ministry. It's got two parts to it. Uh, come to a training. Every month I offer training on what it might look like to, to bring this. But you've got to live it first. Uh, it's, this is not a small group curriculum. This is not a, a, a program. It's a, it's a radical culture that I believe the church desperately needs and inviting your people to flee uh, from the idols of the world and the idols in the church for Jesus' sake. Uh, so again, pick up that ebook on our website, emotionallyheather.org on church history. Take a look at that and uh, send me any questions or comments you have on my Twitter or Facebook at Pete Scazzaro around any of this stuff. I'd love to hear from you and I will take one of these podcasts and answer uh, key questions that I've been asked and I've been gathering them over the weeks and the months. So God bless you. Great to be with you. And I pray you have a wonderful, wonderful day.